All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckadelics? What the fuck tuplets? What? Yeah, how's it going, <laughs> you guys? The what the fuck tuplets? Hey, it's Mark Marin. This is my show, WTF. Welcome to it. How's it going? John Lithgow is here. Yeah. Yeah, the John Lithgow. What is your first memories of John Lithgow? Scary, right? Usually 90% of the time, unless you grew up with Third Rock. I didn't. But uh, for me, I think it's probably, um, uh, could it possibly be Blowout? Oh, maybe it is. I, I, I just know it was, it, he can be a little scary. Even when he's not being scary, he's a little intense. He, like he's intense any way you slice it. When he's scary, it's really fucking scary. When he's nice, he's really fucking nice. And when he's scared, he's really fucking scared. Great actor. No doubt. Great actor. Thrilled to have him. Uh, so he's here. What else do I need to tell you? I would like to encourage you to uh, get tickets to my London show. I'm not begging, but it would be nice. I was there. Maybe I was there a year or so ago. And now I'm back at Royal Festival Hall, April 6th, 2019. That's uh, this week. And uh, it's a 7.30 p.m. show. I believe there's still tickets left. I think Birmingham, there's a few left. I know Manchester sold out. Birmingham on the 8th is, uh, there might be a few left there. Vicker Street in Ireland, Dublin, April 11th. I hope that those, I think there's a few left. Don't know. And then I've got dates coming up in uh, San Diego, in, uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, in Burlington, Vermont, in St. Louis, in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And some more dates will be added. You can go to WTFPodTour.com. Is that right? WTFpod.com slash tour. That'll get you those links. So look, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I'm going to read some emails because I'm doing this a few days before I leave. You're listening to this on Monday probably, so I recorded it a few days ago, like the day before I left for New York. It's I don't need to confuse things, but it's not last night. It's a few nights ago. Because I'm traveling tomorrow, I'm trying to pack. I'm trying to pack for the Europe trip because I only I want to. All I want to take is a carry on because checking bags is such a fucking mess, and you just don't know what the fuck is going to happen. But I'm going to be gone for a while, so uh, how do I pack? Like, look, all right, I'll just do laundry. I'll do laundry on the road, and even though I got a little cash in the bank, I'll probably go to a fucking laundromat if I can find one. You know why? Because uh, I don't mind spending a few hours at a laundromat. I don't mind engaging with just sitting there, looking at the dryer, thinking about the, how clean my clothes are going to be, and just like like I'm doing something out in the world. That's yeah, yeah. I should do more of that. We should all do a little more laundromat stuff. So, you know, I make mistakes. We all make mistakes. I'm willing to admit my my mistakes most of the time stubbornly sometimes i'll hold on to them for a little while depends but uh in a second that I'll, I'll address some apparent mistakes but uh, this one was uh oh this was just a question from who's this from ew uh subject line how do you know hey mark i'm listening to you interview that actor who plays the punisher john bernthal you were asking him about self-doubt. I was listening to you push the topic and push the topic and push the topic. I was beginning to feel uncomfortable. I just felt uncomfortable when you wrote that three times. Just then you switched to asking him about meeting his wife. How did you learn when to switch topics? It seemed like a great time to switch. It felt like you squeezed the lemon right to the edge, then switched. I know I will get stuck in a topic when talking to people. There seems to be a real art to jumping from topic to topic. Any tips? Thanks, EW. 
yeah when when you when you're looking at them as you're saying the thing uh over and over again and they appear annoyed or glazed over or they kind of shut down or they don't hold your gaze anymore or they walk away or they just look at you like what the fuck is wrong with you those are all indicators of time to switch topics also this is an indicator if they say could you quit quit asking me that that that's an indicator uh, or this one, what the fuck are you talking about? That's a sure sign that you might want to move on. Uh, or how about this one? Yeah, I don't, I don't feel comfortable talking about that with you. Yeah, but see, like the thing is, is like you can read all of those things that I just said on someone's face if you're paying attention. Uh, you can also like there are faces for fuck you. There are faces for I don't want to answer that. There are faces for um, uh, not comfortable. You know, it's a mixture. But I, I'd say one of the tips is if they say shut up or move on or, or don't talk to me about that, that's a good time to to not talk about it anymore. Here's another email, Rob Lowe interview subject line. Hey, Mark, I've enjoyed just about all of your 1,000 podcasts. So this is coming from a fan. During your interview with Rob Lowe, I noticed a derisive tone in your voice whenever you discussed his new gig as a game show host. In fact, there was a good amount of contemptuous laughter on your part, which your guest gracefully ignored of course you have every right to judge someone for their choice of occupation but during those parts of the interview i think you came off sounding like a dick still a big fan carl p.s 100 percent well carl you're a hundred percent misreading that uh, mr Lowe and myself uh, had a nice time sometimes i change tones to uh to sort of more connect with the guest and i thought rob Lowe could take a little ball busting which he could you didn't see him smiling you didn't see him laughing he's got to sell the show he can't, you know, look, I know how he feels. We know how he feels. I mean, it, it might be a great show, but come on, man. It's a giant mechanical arm that's throwing people around, stops in front of questions. Give me a fucking break, dude. It's not a matter of judgment. It's bizarro and funny. And yeah, I was slightly derisive with Rob Lowe because that's what it, that's what it required for us to fucking have a good conversation. Just trust me a little bit. Jesus Christ. Is this derisive, Carl? Is, does this, how does this feel, Carl? Because I don't think this is derisive. I think this is annoyed. If I'd be like, if I'd be like, come on, Carl. I mean, are you are you like really? You're you're mad about me making fun of uh, of the game show, Carl? Are you Carl? Are you seriously seriously? Are you are you really upset with me because I made fun of the giant arm amusement park game show that Rob Lowe is is hosting? You are you really? Come on, Carl. I mean, really? How'd that sound? I think that was more what I was doing, and I and I, I have no problem with it. Uh, here's one. Language landmine. So this is where we get into making mistakes, as we do, especially if you're old, older, old enough to be set in some bad habits, perhaps, or the ones that you don't even know you have. Dearest Mark, in your intriguing interview with the charming Phoebe Robinson, both of you used words that could certainly be offensive to native peoples. You said off the res to describe somebody having a possible psychotic break. And she said tribe referring to belonging to a group. I'm not in any way politically correct or a ball buster. And I was not personally offended. However, I thought you would find it interesting how even those of us who are trying have yet to parse the institutionalized racism against our most marginalized groups from our casual language. That is a fine sentence. The fuckery of our cultural legacy is embedded in the very words, no matter our intent. Thanks for all you do. I enjoy virtually hanging out with you and your guests twice a week. You feel like a good friend I've never met, and listening to you has helped me know myself better and grow. Sincerely, Daniel. Uh, okay, 
you're right. Language is important. Language is powerful. Uh, language uh, can do good things. It can do bad things. But it does get in there and dictate the you know, movement of culture. It dictates a lot of things, especially through through repetition. And uh, I get it. These things can evolve. But when I read yours, I was like, yeah, I, I kind of understand what he was saying. Then I got this email. Off the res, four question marks. Glad I stuck with listening to the full show. Surprised to hear you say off res. The interview with Phoebe was so thoughtful. Surprised you made the comment in real time after that interview. Think you need to address the comment. K. Okay. Okay. I know now. Off the res is not good because it's offensive to native peoples. I'm sorry. I will not say it anymore. Not a problem. It's out. I removed it. But these two emails were reasonably toned. And I think that uh, obviously I can't expect much from bullies on the right, but I can expect something from bullies on the left in the sense that if if there is a teachable moment or whatever they call it, then do it. Teach it. I mean, don't condescend and belittle and and indict somebody for for you know saying something that they may not have known was wrong. Uh, it, it feels good. I know there you know there's a lot of hopelessness and powerlessness uh, in progressive people right now, but that doesn't mean you need to you know condescend, bully, or indict people for things they might not understand. You know, it, it just say these two emails were reasonable, and they weren't like. Um, you fucking idiot. You fucking racist. You fucking piece of shit. Don't you know what you just did? No, I didn't. I didn't know. And if you talk to me like that, uh, I'm not going to keep doing it, but I'm probably going to just shut down and uh, not really take it in and then secretly resent you and think you're a condescending, self-righteous douchebag, even though I get what you're saying. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to like the way you said it. And who the fuck are you to talk to me like that? So... If there is a teachable moment, I was just talking to somebody I made up in my head, by the way, uh, you know, teach it, teach it nicely, teach it empathetically, teach it like, you know, like somebody who cares. All right, look. Oh, you know what? I didn't get to talk about this. Last week, my congressman, Adam Schiff, did an amazing thing in uh, hearing in Congress, uh, sitting next to a bunch of um, Republicans and just... Uh, just really giving it to him, just talking about it. it was sort of like you had to watch it. Go look it up. Adam Schiff, uh, you know, uh, amazing sort of almost rabbinical rant uh, in the hearing there in Congress about Russia. And he says it's not OK. And, and like all it was really missing, being a Jew and having grown up, you know, going to synagogue sometimes in congregation, it really felt like a classically Jewish responsive reading. Um, it just it, it just it felt like that. Here, it, it, I actually found the text of it, and it, I swear to God, it will work. They should—it it would be perfect for synagogue. My colleagues might think it's okay that the Russians offer dirt on the Democratic candidate for president as part of what's described as the Russian government's effort to help the Trump campaign. Then the congregation goes, "It's not okay." You might think that's okay, congregation. It's not okay. My colleagues might think it's okay that when that was offered to the son of the president, who had a pivotal role in the campaign, that the president's son did not call the fbi he did not adamantly refuse that foreign 
help. No, instead, that son said that he would love the help with the Russians. You might think that's okay. It's not okay. That he took that meeting. It's not okay. You might think it's okay that Paul Manafort, the campaign chair, someone with great experience running campaigns, also took that meeting. It's not okay. You know what I'm talking about. You know what they, the, the rabbi says something, then the congregation answers. Hey, you know what? Thank you, Adam Schiff. He's a nice guy. I think he's a vegan because of uh, cholesterol issues. Anyways, listen, John Lithgow is here. He, uh, he's in the new film adaptation of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, which opens this Friday, April 5th. He's also on Broadway with Laurie Metcalf in the play Hillary and Clinton at the Golden Theater. It's in previews now, and opening night is April 18th. Enjoy, Mr. Lithgow and myself. Okay, so you're wearing a Steppenwolf jersey, and I know why. You do know why? Yes, I do. Why? How, how do you know? Because I'm working with Lori Metcalf right oh, now. Oh, that's right. <laughs> She'd left her Steppenwolf jersey, or her hoodie, in my old garage. By mistake? or Yeah, and it was her favorite thing, uh-huh. and uh, it was sort of a thing, you know, And because she was doing uh, the, the, the play on Broadway, the women, what is it? Three, oh, uh, yeah, the Three Tall Women. Three Tall Women. And she was very upset that she'd left her hoodie, and I arranged to have it sent to her ASAP so she <laughs> yes. could have it. And I told the story on the show, and they sent me one. Great. Well, I mean, what is, what is it what, when you when you think about Steppenwolf as a stage actor? You know, because like in my mind, it, it's just sort of like there's an intensity, man. There's like there, you know, you yeah. think of Malkovich, and you think of like even the next generation, or Joan Allen and Tracy and and Laurie. Yeah, yeah. There's this intensity. There's this rawness. There's a you know, and it, and it's sort of a, a, a school of thought. Yeah, it's kind of like the Chicago school. They they brought those productions to New York in yeah. the late seventies. Yeah, and it was like this. Brace. Steppenwolf did. Yeah, yeah. This bracing breath of air from Chicago. There's this. There's a certain defiance about it. The Windy City. Yeah. The angry wind. When I was in high school, there was a, a big hit show yeah. on Broadway called uh, From the Second City. Yeah. And it was- A review? It was It was the Second City Review yeah. with Alan Arkin and Barbara Harris. Wait, and, when you were in high school in Ohio? No, in I, I, I went to lots of schools, but I finished high school in Princeton, New Jersey. So you were in New Jersey, yeah, and that was sort of just the Second City Review would have been just post the Compass Players, yeah, right. And they came to New York and performed on Broadway and made this smash hit, but they would come down to Princeton on Monday night, yeah, their night off, Busman's yeah. Holiday, yeah, at, so they could just improvise instead of doing a polished Broadway show. And you saw and there I was in a tiny theater. I saw Alan Arkin when he must have been about twenty nine years old. Oh my God, and. Was it? Com- it was all comedy. Oh yeah, it was just flat out hilarious wow. and and very interactive improv. It yeah, was yeah, just yeah. not polished at all. Right. I was in like the second row of this like 150 seat theater. Yeah. On the Princeton University campus. Yeah. I was just a high school kid. Well, I mean, were you acting in high school? Yeah, I mean, I was acting and acting and acting. Yeah. I was in a theater family. Uh, I grew up. My dad produced. A regional theater. Sort of Where? Mainly in Ohio in yeah. the 50s and 60s. He created Shakespeare festivals. There's this... What part of Ohio? Uh, Yellow Springs, where Antioch is. 
Uh, I lived in Waterville, outside of Toledo. Were you Were you born in Ohio? No, I was born in Rochester. Rochester. Did you spend time in Rochester? No, no. I was gone by two years old. Yeah. To Ye- Yellow Springs is the closest I have yeah. to a hometown, although it only lasted till I was about eleven. Why all the moving? Well, my dad was a theater producer, and they kept on. Well, that's go- not the military. It was like the opposite of a military brat. It was a theater rat uh-huh. uh, upbringing. And the, his legacy theater is the Great Lakes Theater Festival in Cleveland, which still goes on. He started it in 1962 as the Great Lakes Shakespeare Festival. Wow. So you, how did he start in it? Was he an actor? or He, he, was, was always- he acted and directed, but principally he was the artistic director of all these theaters. And he ran the McCarter Theater at Princeton for about 10 years. Uh-huh. When I, round about the time, the first pro job I had, I mean, with an equity contract, playing proper roles, was working for my dad and McCarter. Yeah, how old were you? That was about 24 years old. But but you, so you grew up in the theater. Mm Mm-hmm. Just wandering around the theater. Was your mom involved? Just as a kind of uh, keeping it all together. She had started out acting, but I never saw her act. She Uh had quit we, Except she had as four, a mother? She had four kids. I mean, we were a real gypsy wagon. Wow. And she just kept it all together. And, and uh, like your dad would just pull up stakes and say, we're going here. I got Sometimes he pulled up stakes. Sometimes he was run out of town. Uh, sometimes he got a bigger, better gig and we moved on. Why would he be run out of town, John? Uh, well, the theater would go belly up, uh-huh. and they they hadn't paid their payroll taxes or whatever. You know, right. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. Or well, none of which I knew about as a kid. We just, you know, we just packed our suitcases and got into the station wagon. And was it? Well, it seems like he was on some sort of mission. There must have been some sort of belief in the magic of it that uh, oh. Shakespeare was necessary for people to to be he, decent or something. He absolutely loved Shakespeare. He was a he was a kind of shy, isolate kid, as I, as I, that's the lore in our yeah. family. Uh-huh. And somewhere around 15, 16 years old, he discovered Shakespeare and read the entire canon huh. start to finish. Have you? No. <laughs> Come on. It's like reading the dictionary. Uh, but he was passionate about it, and he so fervently believed in it. Uh, let me describe his most successful venture with yeah. Shakespeare. It was about an eight-year-long Shakespeare festival in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Yeah. Uh, this troupe of actors who would perform outdoors on the main building right in front of this big, beautiful Victorian Gothic brick building. It was, it was a, like a, a, a an extension, an extended it, porch or something? It was. It, they <laughs> sort of built a unit, a, a unit stage, uh-huh. and in the course of a summertime... They would open seven Shakespeare plays in nine weeks, rehearsing in the day, performing at night. And once all seven of them, seven, yeah, they opened them all, then they ran them in ro- rotating repertory, a different play every night of the week. So he had a, a Shakespearean company. Yeah. Of and they people. were mainly uh, young, fresh out of the oven uh, graduates of Carnegie Tech. Now Carnegie Mellon, okay, and really good actors. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you probably wouldn't have heard any of them, their names now, but uh, theater actors in the '60s and '70s. These were the major. Oh yeah, guys they went on I, to be the big guys. They were just tremendous, and, and I, 
you know, I always thought, how how good could this possibly have been? Yeah. And, you know, just throwing together a shake, an entire hamlet in one week. Right. Uh, you know, when I became a young and pretentious young actor, I sort of dismissed it in my own memory. And someone sent me a reel-to-reel tape of one of the productions. Really? Like Merry Wives of Windsor. Uh, Just out a, of nowhere? A, a, someone... com- a comedy yeah. where not a single joke is comprehensible to a <laughs> modern audience. And you heard these young actors performing out of doors, no amplification. Yeah. And the audience roaring with laughter, and the acting was fantastic. It high energy, fast as lightning, and yeah. with incredible diction. Uh, it was just exhilarating. And uh. sure enough, it created this incredible success over many years. People would come from all over the country to spend a week and see in Ohio. Seven, you know, yeah, Southern Ohio. It's weird because, uh, you know, not to be condescending, but you don't hear about Ohio being a cultural mecca well, anymore. There are, listen, you, cr- you, you know, you, there are pockets you cross sure. this country, it's amazing how, it's many, how many pockets there are. Yeah, there's just like, you know, it's, see, like it's easy to do what, you know, what I just did is just where you draw these lines where like that yeah. state. But, yeah, but, I know, but I mean, the, no, no, this these Shakespeare festivals still exist all over the place in Utah yeah. and... Yeah, God knows San Francisco and, you, and, and Ashland, Oregon. That, that that's went, a big place. That's yeah. a big, big deal. Yeah. over the years. And what, what's your relationship with Shakespeare outside of not having read the the canon? I mean, I've I've talked a lot on this show with people about how I just can't. It's hard for me to access. Yeah, and then uh, Sir Ian McKellen did it to my face. Mm-hmm. He did Shakespeare right to yes. my face. Did it bring you around? Yeah. Well, I mean, sure. I mean, I, I understood it. I felt the emotions of it. I can understand it. It's uh, you know, if I listen, but it's staying in the pocket. You you ha- the- yes, yeah, so you have to give it time, and you have to you have to understand about a Shakespeare play when you go to see it. Yeah. You, you got to know if, the story. if you're seeing it fresh, you're not going to understand the first half hour, right? And then bit by bit, the yeah. story emerges, and you begin to appreciate what a great storyteller he was, right? But the trick of Shakespeare is, uh, look, he was a poet. Yeah, I mean, he, and he d- had all these devices yeah. for captivating an audience. Yeah, a lot of it had to do with the beauty of the language, right? But if you see pretty much any Shakespeare play, some of it is in verse Mm -hmm. and some of it is in prose. Right. Tends to be a sort of class system. Right. The the noble characters will speak in verse. Oh, yeah? And the supernumeraries, the the bit parts. The rabble? Like like the grave digger in Hamlet. Yeah. They'll talk colloquial language. And it's the language of 400 years ago. So you have to, it's like watching a, a French movie with subtitles. Yeah. You you sort of gradually be, get into the rhythm of it. And, you know, what I've always, my little paradigm for it was uh-huh. that Shakespeare and and all writing for the stage yeah. is a combination of three things. Yeah. Uh, the meaning, the emotion, and the music. Uh-huh. The meaning is simply making it comprehensible. Yeah. And that's not easy with Shakespeare. Right. Because you have to get an extremely willing audience. Yeah. That has some... Uh, but it's surprise. It's amazing how untutored people can actually be swept away by it. Sure, the emotion is just the emotion of the characters, the interaction of Iago and Othello and Desdemona. Yeah, and the music is the extraordinary sound. 
of the language. Of the language, which yeah. is why we are still quoting it. Which right. is why Ian McKellen sat here and and he and, can do it and sort of dazzled. I think you. he did. He did a piece that was about immigrants. I think. From, yes, right. From Thomas. He, is it from Moore? What is it? It was called? a sort of discovered piece yeah, of yeah, Shakespeare. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Thomas Moore. It was Thomas a Moore, play right. about Thomas Moore. Yeah, he did it right there, as close as you are to me. Yeah. Just look at me right in the eye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but how often do you do Shakespeare? Rarely. Yeah. Uh, I did King Lear a few years ago. You were in, King Lear? In, in Central Park. That's which a lot. Was a fantastic experience. And I did Malvolio with the Royal Shakespeare Company in 2007. Uh huh. But before then, I had not done Shakespeare since I was a kid. Since, well, I think 1975, I was Laertes in Hamlet in the park. I, I don't know. Other things come along. You sure. know, I'm well, much... what did you learn from Lear? I mean, what was your experience? Because that's one of those things where an actor is ready to take it on. You have to mm -hmm. be a certain age, and then it will reveal itself to you. What yes. Was, what was revealed to you, John, from Lear? What What did you come out of it feeling different about? Oh, I just it just <laughs> felt incredible to finally stand and deliver. Yeah. Uh, that language is titanic. Yeah. And the emotions are 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 huge especially for an old man yeah and it's true you have to be old enough to play it but you also have to be young enough to play it because it's so incredibly demanding yeah and i did it on the young end i think i was 69 years old i know wasn't olivier near death when he did yeah it? and and mckellen is doing it for the second time in about 15 years i guess last year he did it. Well, you're one of those guys, too, that's always seemed to be uh, somewhat you know, middle-aged your entire life. Yes. I, I, I remember <laughs> auditioning for a director named Stephen Porter in New York, yeah. I think probably before I had a New York job. Yeah. And I was, I was auditioning for the young romantic uh -huh. character, secondary role, in yeah. a Moliere play. Yeah. And he said, you know, you're going to grow into yourself as an actor. Yeah. He said basically what you just said. I've always been old. I didn't say I, old. I think, that, I think that comes from growing up doing... I mean, I did do a huge amount of Shakespearean acting as a kid right up until I was like 19, 20 Because your old. dad would throw you in stuff? Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, including when I was a little boy playing Mustard Seed in Midsummer Night's Dream. Well, was there... When you did that, like... Uh, like having this, like it seems like your your father must have been a passionate guy. Yeah, was he? he well, he, he certainly was when it came to putting on plays. Right. Yeah. But a in, man in, of tremendous passion. But at home, a little detached. Oh, he was very sweet. Yeah. He was just a sweet and genial kind <laughs> yeah. of calm guy. But yeah. boy. You see him play these bravura roles in Shakespeare. Oh, and they all came out? I used to imitate him for my friends in grade school. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> your dad acting. You would imitate your dad yes. acting. Yeah, playing Stefano in The Tempest, you know, the comic drunkard. Uh-huh. And he, he really was, opened up, huh? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Did any of your siblings get into the business? Well, both my sisters were teachers, Yeah, but they did a huge amount of theater in the schools. Uh-huh. In fact, my older sister, Robin... She became uh, the arts administrator of the whole uh, unified school district here in Los Angeles, crea oh, really? creating arts programs, including theater programs for kids. Oh, that's noble. It was noble, and it was a huge success until 2008. when They took the money away? All the money went out. So her job became supervising the dismantling of the programs oh, that she had created. Heartbreaking. One of those real tragedies. That's where they decided to take the money from. 
Well, you know? it tends to be the first thing to go because it's it's not to to all appearances it's not the thing that leads to academic success and career success might lead to a decent children it, it it feeds the soul it's yeah. the other half of an education well that seems to be part of your life now you i mean you do a lot of stuff for the kids uh, yeah 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 Th- thank you for noticing <laughs> that's sort of my hidden career fly, yeah flying under the radar well well let's go back so when you're a kid are you just picking up acting by being around it yeah yeah absolutely I, and i I loved the whole atmosphere, uh, me and my siblings and even some of my best friends. Yeah. We, we considered these young actors in their mid-20s and early 30s our, our best friends. You know, well, that's interesting. Just... So you had this input from these young people who are in that, that zone of self-discovery. In what years was this? In the early 70s? Uh, principally the late 50s, early 60s. Okay, so the uh, the culture hadn't broken up yet, but uh, in the sense of like uh, people doing their own thing, man. Well, almost. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, well, I, I guess my question I, is: Were these guys kind of like uh, these men and women that you know were were sort of mentoring you just by proximity? Were they a wild bunch? Not really. Mm-hmm. I mean, no more than most actors are. Uh, uh, you know, they're <laughs> young tearaways. They're yeah. They had a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, but they no, it was not. The revolution had not arrived right uh, in those years. Right. Um, you know, th- when I started acting seriously for my dad at eighteen, nineteen, that yeah. was literally in sixty three, sixty four. Right. And that was just before the deluge. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, but you felt it coming. Did it like was it? No, no. It, we, it, it, we we were in this little extraordinary little bubble. Right. Everything was about about Shakespeare, right. about acting. Yeah. And, and so no so you're just picking up pointers. Yeah, how do you learn to act at that point? Like I mean like You know, you, it, it was not I was not I certainly didn't intend to be an actor. I didn't want to be an actor. Yeah. Uh I was I was an artist. I was I was a very serious artist. Painter? I painter and printmaker. Uh-huh. And I intended to in do high school. that in high school. Yeah. Very serious. Well, I was going to commuting from Princeton, New Jersey, yeah. into the Art Students League to draw nude not nude models. What's the Art know, Students League in New York? Oh yeah, it's a great old institution on Fifty Seventh. Still Street. around? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And they just went. To, what do you do? Take classes there? Yeah, you... yeah. I mean, I took a sort of teenagers uh, drawing and watercolor yeah. class with a bunch of really good. Uh, School of Visual Arts yeah. type in New York City kids. So that was uh, that was the goal to. But well, you're always going to be an point, artist. And yeah. you know, I just I did lots. I did woodcuts and yeah. uh, and I had extremely good public school art classes back yeah. in those days. Yeah. But I went to Harvard. Yeah. Mainly because I got into Harvard. It's which was if you wanted if you seriously wanted to be a painter, that was the completely wrong thing to do. Well, because uh, you don't study yeah. art at Harvard. Had your family gone to Harvard? No, you just no. were smart. Guys. I just got in. Yeah, I had had such a unique childhood. I suppose. Uh huh. <laughs> I was such an oddity, uh, and I was you know I acted and I I painted. Uh, I was an interesting kid. Yeah, and what was Harvard? What year was that? In, at Harvard? I started in sixty three, graduated uh-huh. in sixty seven. Uh huh. 
And as soon as I got there, I fell in with the theater gang, and it was all extracurricular. You didn't study it, right? But but there were tremendously talented kids. And uh, was it like was the hasty pudding doing things? I the hasty pudding was kind of beneath my dignity. Oh, right. I was a very pretentious and uh, <laughs> woodcutter. I was an aesthete. Yeah. I was playing Tartuffe. Uh huh. What, what was the was it a it was a troupe of non theater major actors. Yeah, and there was yeah. no theater major. We just ran off and did our thing. And but sure at least two thirds of my waking hours yeah. were spent and not just uh theater, but I directed operas and uh at Harvard? At Harvard I I was the president of the Gilbert and Sullivan Society. I uh, did patter songs in like six G N S operettas. Uh-huh. It was just an this Four years of just exuberant, fervent, unsupervised creative activity for a young performer. And what uh, were you actually majoring in? English history and literature. And uh, did you do well? I did fine. <laughs> yeah. So, but so you, I guess they're connected. You know. Oh, yeah. they're definitely connected. Uh, but I went off from Harvard. I went right to London on a Fulbright grant to study acting at Lambda. Uh-huh. I mean, I was already. I could have gone right into the profession, but I, for one thing, I wanted to go to England. Yeah, I'd never been to England. And before. and the rep American repertory was not in no. Harvard's it was not. Yet. It was not a. Pro- there was no professional troupe in that Loeb Drama Center. It was all students. It was so our big. You, but you had house. a stage. We had a stage. Beautiful facilities. We had professional supervisory staff. Yeah. A staff designer, a staff tech oh, really? director. So they gave you all that. So they encouraged. They it. gave us, although we had, we stood in and 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 worked. Yeah. We, we did. in fact we we spurned their advice. You know. Yeah. We, we we were really arrogant little pricks. Yeah. Back in those. Well, that, days. I mean, well, I mean, I, I think that Harvard. That's not unusual. No, that's it's a it's an abiding characteristic of <laughs> yeah, Harvard grads. I, I think, yeah, it's a it's part of the application process. <laughs> yes, that's how right. they decide whether you're right for the school. Or not. <laughs> Just how arrogant are you? Exactly. <laughs> so where so you you got a Fulbright to go to England mm-hmm. and study at what which which place? At Lambda, which is stands for what? London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. It's one of the three or four kind of pillars of the community. The over big there. one. One of the there's Rada, Lambda, Central, and uh, what's the uh, difference? Um, well, Lambda's the best. <laughs> uh, no, they they actually there's very much a traditional academic training in England. There, yeah. al- there always has been certain basic things you study. Like Rada is the one with the Royal Charter. Oh. It's and it has had all sorts of major, you know, the late. Albert Finney yeah. as of yesterday. Uh, he was yeah. a Rada grad. You know so that guy? I never met Albert Finney. No. He did some good work. I exchanged wonderful letters with him, but oh, I never nice. met him. And Tom Courtney and oh, all, yeah. all, all these. Uh, Lambda it, was always regarded as sort of the proletarian uh, alternative to Rada, but now their status is absolutely the, the same. And uh, Lambda's an incredible institution. So you're yeah. coming in with a lot of Shakespearean experience. Yeah, but I haven't put it to work much. Right. You know, just a couple of productions over the years. And when you say academic in terms of the training, what is that like what does that mean? How they start you out? What do you gotta Oh my learn God. sword I, fighting and dancing? Absolutely. Sword fighting, historic dance, uh, stage movement, uh, voice 
diction and, yeah. and different classes for for diction and vocal projection. Yeah, uh, and so and and a lot of uh, scene work, a lot of Shakespeare, Chekhov, Shaw. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It was a an old. It was a classical training. You know, my our All right. our Lambda has this D group, this one year group. Yeah, which sort of compacts the entire three or four years. Is that what you did? That's what I did. And then extended the grant for another year. And did what? Hung around London. You know, it was an incredible time, end of the 60s. So that's when it all breaks open. It was breaking open then, for sure. And and what, and, and, and the theater was incredible back then. This yeah. was when Peter Brook was doing, he was a young man. And yeah. Peter Hall was the director of the National Theater, and Trevor uh, Nunn became the youngest director ever of the rsc so you're just hanging out and you're going to those things going to everything yeah like and and you know the the school was nine to five every day it was really hard work yeah uh and then the second year when i was no i'd completed that one year program i just i basically it was vietnam time and i was i wanted to hang on to my federal grant as long as i could to stay out of the war right and I said, renew my grant, and I'll find something to do. And I worked. That kept as, you out of the war, up to a point, and then at a certain point, I was drafted anyway. You were, yeah. And what happened? Uh, I just got out of it, pure acting. <laughs> it was, that's what it was like. As back if in your those life days. depended on it. As if our lives depended. So, on it. so with the federal grant, you, you were somewhat protected because they weren't going after people who were engaged at that level. Well, or? it was if you stayed in school. Okay, you were you were protected up to a point. It was just after I got out of the draft that the draft lottery came in. Oh, so okay. It was an incredible, intense year, that particular year. 1968-69. If you think about watershed sort of benchmark years in American history, 68 was right up there. I mean, that's the year that Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were assassinated in the Democratic Convention. Convention, right. And Nixon beating Humphrey and Watergate, all, all the seeds of what, well, Watergate was four years later. But there I was in England for two years, thinking, a lot of the time, thinking, what am I doing here when the country's going all to hell? Did you feel, was it a similar feeling to what we're feeling now? Everybody thought the center was not holding, that the whole country was falling apart back in those days. Uh, I mean, there was a tremendous anti-war and anti-draft movement. I graduated from Harvard, and literally everybody I know found a way to get out of the draft. So you're in and, England, and you're going to theater, and you're seeing all this great stuff, and how do you know you got drafted? Oh, I got a draft notice from my draft board in Trenton, New Jersey. They didn't know I was in England. Yeah, and who they forwarded along, your folks did? Yeah, or? my folks forwarded it, and I wrote back and said, well, I, you know, I'm, you can't draft me. I'm on a here. I'm here on a federal grant. Yeah, and they said, no, we're drafting you. <laughs> uh, so I went off to a, a physic a draft physical at, yeah. a, at an air force base, uh, an RAF air force base where there was a U.S. presence. Yeah, and a bunch of air force guys. Yeah. Basically said you don't want to go. <laughs> you don't want to go. All right. Really? I mean, they they had lucky. they had no dog in the fight. Right. It was Army versus Air Force. Right. Like, so like a football game. So uh, so you just went there and you didn't have to. 
it act was, crazy or I just basically acted like what I was. I just amplified it. Yeah, which was what I just said. I'm, uh, I I have a pathological fear of conflict. Uh-huh. You know, I had I had actually attempted to get out of the draft as a conscientious objector sure. because I objected to right. the war. Right. But they had they had completely discarded that. Yeah, that 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 wasn't working. That was anymore. all a, like a written application yeah. that was right. rejected. Right. So I didn't even attempt that. So you didn't have to cry or shit your I pants? I did cry. Or, I did, did cry. I fainted when they drew my blood. I felt so ashamed of myself. For doing that? Well, it was it was like I was acting. Yeah. But I wasn't acting for the right reasons, you know. It's I, I wasn't acting for an audience and telling a story. Right, but you feel... You don't have any regrets about that, though, do you? I think I've lived a... Uh, I, sure, I thought that regret has stayed with me. Y- you know, the, that moment for young men, the late 60s, is like a third rail of, a, of American society. You yeah. rarely get guys to tell the story of how they got out of the draft uh-huh. because there is a, there's a lingering shame to that, I think. Uh, and yet, back in those days, you would get stoned and tell your hilarious story to everybody. Right. It was like Alice's Restaurant. Right. You know, the big, that big hit song, that big Arlo Guthrie sure. saga was sure. all about pretending to be crazy to get out of the draft and yeah. how it didn't work. Right. And he got out of the draft anyway because uh, he had he had thrown garbage in the wrong place right. a year before and they saw that he had a, a record. A record you know? yeah. That was a, cla- a classic story. Yeah. But we all had a comic story, like right. a stand-up comedy routine. Sure. Unless you hadn't gone through the agony quite yet. Right. Up until then, you were just a nervous wreck. And afterwards, you had your war story too, except that it was an anti-war story. Yeah, but it's interesting that the shame... It sort of lingers because you, you you didn't man up, or 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 that. There's some element of that. I mean, I remember I worked with a wonderful actor named Dennis Arndt. Uh, he's just a terrific guy, and we we did a film called Distant Thunder, which was not a successful film. Mm. We were p- both playing Vietnam yeah. Vietnam bush vets. Uh-huh. We shot it up in Vancouver. And Denny and I went and actually hung out with these bush vets in the uh, the Olympic Peninsula. What's a bush vet? Guys who just went to live in the woods, veterans who oh. were, whose lives were so wrecked oh. that they basically- Went off the grid. Went off the grid. Yeah. And we hung out with these guys for three or four days and went to their, to their counseling meetings. Yeah. And, oh, God, it was so- And I, I felt I'm just acting the part. I yeah. feel- th- like such a fraud. Yeah. And then he had been a chopper pilot in Vietnam. He'd gone through the whole drill. Yeah. And I said, Denny, I didn't go and I can't get up interacting with these guys. I can't get over the sense of shame. Yeah. And he said, John, I went to Vietnam and I can't get over my sense of shame. We're all casualties of that war. And it's it's hard to bring that back to life for people who aren't you know yeah over seventy years old right and who who lived through all that yeah it's heavy because even in retrospect obviously I don't under I can't understand but I empathize because I found that you know moving but like even knowing that the war was you know unwinnable and a and a disaster and and, mm-hmm. and based on 
and yet insanity. These, you still like you know like I, I and yet these guys went and they were they went because they felt they they had to serve their country and yeah. they made colossal sacrifices. And they and, want they didn't want to go to jail. Yeah, and they want to leave uh, the country. No, it's uh, it's heavy. It's a very heavy thing, and and back in those days, it was it dominated everybody's uh, men and women. You know, women who felt the terrible guilt of their boyfriends. Yeah, uh, I've had that conversation with women my age about uh, who of their boyfriends who bailed, who, who, ba who bailed or didn't bail. Yeah. Or I was in London with a lot of American guys yeah. who were just basically self-exiles, and they didn't know how the, what they were going to do. They, they, were, know, they were hiding out from the war. They didn't know how they were going to get home. When did you go home? I got home at the end of two years uh -huh. of study and went to work for my dad. In the theater? Yeah. doing. You were acting for your father? I acted and directed and see, designed. That, I, he, see, that's great that you had this dad... Yeah, <laughs> I had a fabulous head start. I worked for him for a year. Hands on. And then I said, no, Dad, it's time to move, that I got to go and do this myself. Where'd you go? To New York and was out of work for two years, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, Ironically, yeah. I, I was hired to direct. Yeah. I was well on my way to being a director, not an actor. Yeah. In fact, Baltimore Center Stage even offered me a job as yeah. uh, associate artistic director. Yeah. You uh, could have been. You could have had a career as a regional theater director. That's John. right. That's right. <laughs> you could. Have. And I accepted the job because I had nothing else. Yeah. And then two weeks later, I got the job I always wanted, which, which was, was a, a year's residency at Long Wharf Theater back when they had a resident company. Where was that? New Haven. So okay, so that was your dream. Was you were really locked into I, the theater world? That was my world. Regional theater was what I did. As a matter of fact, I remember my Fulbright grant application. They asked the question, "What will you do with the, yeah. the work you study on yeah. this grant?" And I said, "American Repertory Theater." Uh, but the second show I did at Long Wharf, uh, a British play with its American premiere called "The Changing Room," uh -huh. about a rugby team and its changing room. Yeah. It got a lot of national press. Yeah. It was a terrific production. It came intact to Broadway, to 45th Street, and I had my Broadway debut in that. You know, I never thought I'd get to Broadway. Yeah. And two weeks later, yeah. two weeks after our opening night, I won a Tony Award for it. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> it was like back in those <laughs> days, there was no lag time. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that... Oh my God! I, that I am crazy. the the actor who won a Tony after the shortest time <laughs> after his debut. Probably a lot of uh, a lot of bitter actors, a lot of angry, <laughs> I know, resentful well, actors. Well, it was a cast of twenty two men, and yeah. uh, not they weren't entirely <laughs> celebrating when I won the best supporting actor. I would imagine the entire theater community <laughs> in New York was like, "Who the fuck is this?" Exactly. Kid? Yeah, you. <laughs> certainly, how I feel most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> So, th so now you're off and running then, huh? Yeah, back then. I really haven't been s seriously out of work since then. And no, but, was, but how was... long was the focus theater? When did the the first, when did you realize like I'm going to do movies? Were you always auditioning for films and television? No, it's uh, I mean uh, in the 70s, I that was in 1973. Yeah. And for about 10 years I did like 80% Plays. I did 12 Broadway plays uh -huh. and a few movies. I was in All That Jazz. 
Oh, yes. I was in a... You were the producer? or what? Yeah, 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 the director. I'm amazed you even remember. It was a little part. Hell of a movie, though. A great movie. There was a crew, like there were two or three of the producer types, Yeah, exactly. In fact, Fosse even hired genuine people to be... Oh, you were the more... You were sort of like the... The arrogant shit, yes. Right, right, right. right. I was sort of the embodiment of of, uh, all of Fosse's rivals in the Right, but you you played another director, correct? Or was it a producer? Yeah, a rival director. Right, rival director, I remember. And everybody speculated, who is he, who is he? I wore sunglasses on the top of my head. Right, exactly. Which is what Hal Prince had always done, you know? And... But in directing my scenes, yeah. Fosse referenced Gower Champion, uh-huh. Mike Nichols, uh-huh. Michael Bennett, and Hal Prince. So he, he was sort of an embodiment of all all the people he was jealous of. Just this of. contemptible, arrogant, <laughs> yeah, like, and right. every, everything, every, every part was, of your body was just sort of like... Yeah. <laughs> it was He's, really something. He, he was, I remember. And, and Fosse just loved all that. <laughs> he was. A, he must have been great to work he with. He was fantastic. Yeah. And so, okay, so you did in the seventies. You did all that jazz, mm-hmm. and you did. Uh, when did you do Blowout? Is that ah, yeah, Blowout. Well, I had known uh, De Palma. Yeah. W- when we were both students, he was a student in Columbia, and I was at Harvard. And how do you know him? We met through a. We we actually. I, I created a, a sort of summer theater workshop. Uh huh. Uh, in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, yeah, I think the year before my uh, the summer before my senior year of college, with a bunch of Columbia guys, a few of us Harvard guys and a few of us Columbia guys. Uh-huh. And Brian was a good friend of those guys. Yeah, and he came down to see. I remember we were doing a Moliere evening, two, uh-huh. th- three Moliere one acts, mm-hmm. and I was acting my head off. And I heard this wild, like banshee laugh from the audience. And the audiences were not big yeah. audience. They were not big crowds. Yeah, uh, we would fill the the theater about twenty five percent full. It, the whole enterprise was a huge flop. Yeah, but I heard this screaming laugh. Yeah. That was Brian De Palma. <laughs> yeah. and, and and in in many ways, he sort of godfathered my entry into movies. He recommended me to the first movie I was ever in. Yeah. And then shortly after, he hired me for Obsession. Yeah. And then- I never I op- saw Obsession. You should see it. It's it's classic old time De Palma. I mean, De Palma's stuff I've seen early most on, of the movies. Have you seen Hi, Mom and Greetings? I don't know. Those are her, his wild- Those were when oh, he wow. was- Oh, wow. It's written by Paul Schrader. Yeah. I mean, well, I those guys- I have seen it. You got to see them because they were very radical films. And De Niro was in them. Yeah. He was in- uh, uh, hi mom I think and greetings wow I'm so mad but you gotta see them cause those were his uh, that's when he was a real r- renegade yeah and then I thought of, bl- well blowout was well I mean then he became the, the master of the macabre you know he sort of embraced <laughs> suspense and horror right and, cause right. he always loved that and then I did Raising Cain yeah, I saw that. That was 1990. Heavy. But Blowout was great. Like, yeah, that was a great a, one. It was one of his really good ones. But he, I don't know what you know, what the sort of uh, how he sees his interpretation of other movies. But he clearly does that on purpose. Oh yeah, yeah. He he he. he it's not like he was stealing. He right. Always considered it 
both an homage and a kind of secret in-joke. He, yeah. he, he delighted in all that. And what did what about you playing, like, you know, evil fuckers? Well, uh, Brian always, I always was curious why, why he... Uh, <laughs> He thought of me as, as, in fact, there's this wonderful documentary of Brian. Yeah. It's nothing more than an interview with yeah. a lot of cuts to his. And he himself said, I don't know why. I always thought John Lithgow would be a good villain. Uh-huh. I, I don't know what. I, he was bemused by that. I think it's because he loves the idea of someone who's apparently innocent being di- uh-huh. diabolical. And I'm your man for that. Well, you've done it a lot. Yeah. Right? You're, well, it's a great way of surprising people. You know, when they expect one thing yeah. and it turns out to be another, I mean, that's almost the the, the essence of every kind of drama. Right. You know, surprise him, surprise him. But then, well, but like, but luckily, because you work so much, you're not one of those people that when you do a thing like Terms of Endearment, where people are like, no, he's going to be evil at some point. This is going to (laughs) turn. I've I've seen him in the last two movies. Someone's going to get a knife in him. (laughs) But it it goes the other way around. I do Third Rock from the Sun for a few years. Yeah. And I'm the last person they think will be evil. Right. I'm just this clueless doofus, and then I do Dexter, you know, <laughs> yeah. where I couldn't be more evil. And a lot of the villain parts I've played yeah. have a double identity. I, I love duality, where there's two completely opposite sides to a character. Yeah. In fact, about five or six times, I've played my own identical twin. twin <laughs> you know? yeah, that, I mean, that must be a testament to your to your range and skill as an actor that people will do that. that how many people could they really have do that effectively? Obviously, several different directors said, no, John's the guy for this. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. By now, I've gone in so many crazy different directions. Uh, you know, when Stephen Daldry... Yeah asked me to play Winston Churchill, I was just, uh, I was astonished. And everybody I knew was astonished. Really? But I think Daldry had just, well, he'd just seen me do enough unlikely surprising things. He thought, uh, what a a fun idea. Of course he could do this. (laughs) (laughs) And you won a, what, you won an award for that, right? I won a few awards for that. Yeah. Uh, an Emmy Award. Actually, Albert Finney, rest his soul, won an Emmy for playing Churchill, too. Uh, Churchill is a... And, and didn't Oldman just Oldman get an Oscar? Oscar. It's a good prize-winning uh, character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> he would have been very pleased, I think. <laughs> I think he would, too. And you you've have an Oscar? No. No. No, I've been nominated twice, and, and I actually presented one of the nominated films... When Billy Crystal was an Oscar uh, host, and right. he, he he took his eye off the teleprompter for uh-huh. for one second, yeah, and he introduced me as a two-time Oscar winner, John <laughs> Lithgow, <laughs> yeah. and I've this is the first time I've ever uh, disabused people of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder where that came into his head or how that came in. You've won a, quite a few Emmys. Yeah, six. And do you have them all out? No, I don't. I, I, uh, I to tell you the truth, they're, they're <laughs> in storage. I, I mean, yeah. this sounds ridiculous, but I've got a lot of these things. Just, yeah, yeah, and it's like there are too many of them to put on display. Sure, it's, all the different awards. It's, it's the Midwesterner in me. You, you, Where do you, you live? You live here? Yeah, I live here and yeah. have an apartment in New York, so. 
Oh, that's nice. I'm a sort of bi-coastal character. So, so uh, moving through the movies, though, like like I remember, like you're one of those guys that was sort of in a lot of things always. Like I feel like I grew up always seeing you somewhere. Yeah, like, I, like, like a the, bad penny. No, she keeps <laughs> on showing up. <laughs> but like the Twilight Zone movie, that was great. Yes, yes, that it's was a great, great role. You're fabulous, and we're f- working for George Miller. Yeah. Uh, you know, of uh, Mad Max, yeah. Fury, Fury Road. He directed your episode? He directed my episode. And yeah. it was the first time I'd done a few movies before then, yeah. including right. Garp. Sure. But until then, uh-huh. nobody, no film director had as- ever asked me to do more. They'd all asked me to do less. But George, nothing was ever enough. More. He says, I, I, I want to see your face crack. You know, it was just <laughs> great. Terror. And uh, it was incredibly liberating. That was the first time I brought all my uh, sort of bravura yeah. theater chops to, to the movies. Really? Yeah. So, like, everything you earn, <laughs> yeah, bam. how big can I get? You wanted it, you got it. Because you are sweating and freaking out. Oh, yeah, out. total freak out. All yeah. through nonstop. It was like a 20-minute heart attack. Oh, man. It was really fun. Did you work with him again ever? Uh, not George, no, 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 and it's a, I, I loved him. In I, terms yeah. of endearment, like you were the sweet guy. Yeah, yeah. It, that guy was worked a, at the bank. The, yeah, the, yeah. The, it was about a two or three year stretch, which was I came out to L. A. When I met my wife, I came to L. A. We got married. So I, you left New York. You left the theater, the ongoing theater of the seventies. Yeah. And came out to L- L.A. On what movie did you re- decide, like, I got to go to L.A.? Well, I decided because of Mary. Uh, when we got married, I moved in with her. She was a tenured professor. and Out here? Yeah, at UCLA. Uh-huh. And I couldn't. That was for, uh, you've been married twice? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. The, she's my second yeah. wife. And, uh, and I just, uh, it was just sort of a time for change in my sure. life, I guess. Yeah. I moved out. And moved in with her, and bam, 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 bam. I did uh, Garp, Twilight Zone, yep. Terms of Admiring, Footloose, yep. Buckaroo Banzai, oh, yeah. all in the space of of about Buckaroo two and Bonsai. a half years. And they were all wildly different character parts. But popular movies in different ways. Yeah. Some of them are big hit movies, right? Terms and well, Footloose. Terms, for Buckaroo sure. Buckaroo Banzai, though, had a kind of a cult following. It still does, yeah. 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 No, uh, what is it? Wherever you go, there you are. Yeah, and <laughs> laugh while you can, monkey boy. Yeah, that was that's my. <laughs> I wish your listeners could see your laugh. <laughs> right they know now, my laugh. Your smile. <laughs> yeah, I'd forgotten that one. Yeah, monkey it's pretty boy. Mild. Monkey boy. <laughs> that, was, I think, that was like a meme in, like, before the internet. Like that was something people were saying all That's of a right. sudden because of that guy, yeah. Monkey Boy. It was the most lunatic character ever. I loved it. 1984. That's right. It was just because I remember that being around. You know, yeah. you, know, you know how things are around. What was your Monkey Boy line? Laugh a while you can, Monkey Boy. <laughs> <laughs> you get a few of those uh, I once went to my I did an assembly at, yeah. at my at my son's school when he was in yeah. high school and I did my own uh, uh, it was such a self-congratulatory thing to do I gave myself a, a life achievement award oh. and I provided all did my did they ask you to do that? no 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 I, oh, I, it did. was a joke oh, okay. I said I, instead of having clips I yeah. just quoted all my great yeah, one yeah. lines yeah 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 and I had a whole bunch of them what's some of the other ones? 
well, Roberta Muldoon said, I had a great pair of hands, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> laugh while you can, monkey boy. Yeah. And and in terms of endearment, you must be from New York. <laughs> was, you know, I gave the Harry and the Hendersons howl. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was long predated, uh, hello, Dixter Morgan. Mm. You know, that became a... a yes. So you did Third Rock for years. Yeah, that was six years. But you did a lot of television here and there, a lot of the things that people do. They show up and wave and make a joke and yeah. whatever and then go away. Yeah. But uh, but Third Rock was like, that's a lot, right? Yeah, we did 138 episodes and had a fantastic time. I mean, it was really a deliriously fun show. People must know you for that, right? Probably. You played H.L. Mencken? Now that you mention it, I did play H.L. Mencken. <laughs> no, on uh, Ken Burns, uh, he, I'm one of the, his go-to voices. I've been on four or five of Ken Burns' documentaries. You didn't do the Vietnam one, though, did you? That no, was Peter no. Coyote, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I would always do little characters. characters, little letters being read. I was on the Roosevelt one. Voice work's fun, right? Well, it's no different from this. I, Mark, yeah, but, but we're you, doing voice work right now. But you get to do no, but you know, no, you it's get, it's fun. Uh, yeah. It's a lark. I yeah. loved Chris Rock's whole riff on yeah. on voicing animated films at the what Oscars. It? Oh. It's just, you know, when I when I did the voice of Lord Farquaad yeah. in in Shrek, yeah, I did it about four years before the movie came out, yeah. Uh, and it was this whole new technology, Shrek, yeah, right. a very innovative film. And I would go in and lay down some, you know, yeah. Lord Farquaad yeah. and then go away for about yeah. six months. And they'd come in to have me do another 15 minutes to do another little yeah. scene. I maybe dropped in three or four times over a couple of years. Right. I, it put it all together. I spent about 45 minutes on it. <laughs> right. And it lasts four Years later, out comes this phenomenal film, yeah, and it's my voice. I've long since forgotten ever saying these things. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> and it's and, and there it, it, it's forever now. Yeah, yeah. Who like my my producer uh, Brendan? He's got a son. A couple years ago, when his kid was six, his wife got tickets to see Peter and the Wolf at Carnegie Hall. Uh huh. And uh, when she told him, he was not happy because he's he's sensitive. He gets worried about large places and big sounds, yeah, so yeah, it was caused yeah. him anxiety. And he said, no, I'm not going. <laughs> Throw the tickets in the trash. And she says, but John Lithgow <laughs> is, is going to be the narrator. And there's a long pause. And he says, okay, I'll go. <laughs> no, this is my, these are my people. <laughs> the kids? Uh, uh, yes, for about a like a two-year window of opportunity. Then yeah. they, they grow up and think I'm an asshole. But uh, <laughs> no, but I, I, I've spent a lot of time entertaining like the three to seven-year-old set. Yeah? When, yeah. when did that happen? Was that of your own making? Because you've written books. You've done... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very nice thing. I, it mainly came, you know, I had a baby sister 10 years younger than me. Uh -huh. There were four of us siblings. I was the third oldest, and she was 10 years younger than me. Yeah. And I was like her third parent. Right. Sarah Jane, and yeah. I always entertained her. Right. And always the main go-to babysitter. Uh-huh. And then my own kids came along, and I just developed songs. I taught myself the guitar just to sing, sing kid songs to yeah. my kids. And then it was classrooms and benefits for the schools and assemblies. and For their schools? Or for, yeah, And yeah. then you became known to well, the, I, as a guy who did that? 
Not really until yeah. Third Rock from the Sun. Yeah. And I, at that point, it was like somebody suggested you do something with your kids' stuff. Yeah. And I made a v- home v- VCR cassette, yeah. video cassette. And then I made an album. Yeah. With some terrific musicians and a great record producer, and it, it of your was, songs, of my songs, yeah. and also old novelty standards. Yep, uh, Cab Calloway and uh, Betty Boop mm-hmm. and Shirley Temple songs, yeah. as retooled as kids songs. Sure, with great sort of old time jazz orchestration, and I literally called information for Carnegie Hall. Yeah. And dialed Carnegie Hall and told them, I have an album. Yeah. I want to send it to you, and I want to give a concert with a big orchestra. Yeah. Six months <laughs> later, you know. Come on. I had my Carnegie Hall debut. I performed there three or four times. I, I've I've actually done kids' concerts with about a dozen major U.S. orchestras. Huh. Big, hour-long concerts, mostly my own songs. And you sing them? I sing them. I could sing you one right now. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm in. All right. Wait, no, I I sang. Uh, uh, I'll sing you one. Uh, I got two dogs, Fanny and Blue. Bet you kind of wish I had two dogs too. Fanny's all white. Blue's kind of gray. They never ever fight and they never run away. They're not too smart, but they're loyal and true. There's nothing I'd trade for my fanny and blue, etc. <laughs> I mean that they love it. Yeah, they go nuts. And they're very interactive concerts. I haven't actually had time to do this for about three or four years, but I used to do it a lot. Yeah. And it was always this wonderful counterpoint to yeah. entertaining adults. Right. Because kids are electric. I mean, they're an incredibly difficult audience, but if you can control them yeah. and stimulate them and then calm them down, right. get them to really listen and, yeah. and, and hold their attention for an entire hour, get them squealing with joy and yeah. then totally silent. Right. It's a fantastic <laughs> feeling because... I always say, you know, what an actor really wants is to achieve is suspension of disbelief. Yeah. You never get that entirely with an adult audience. They always know they're watching a fiction. Right. But kids, yeah, (laughs) they haven't figured anything out yet. They think, my God, I'm seeing the real thing. (laughs) So, <laughs> and they have no irony at all. Yeah, they just completely buy it. They're not they buy cynical. it all. Yeah, so it's they're excited just, to buy it. They're so excited, and and it must feel great. It feels great, and yeah. then they they grow up and turn their backs on me oh. until they discover me in Dexter. Right, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, or or they discover you when they're teaching their own kids stuff. That's right. That's no, no but way. I mean the most wonderful thing is to hear parents say you know their kids love my albums or yeah whatever. it's a it's a wonderful or or my books yeah because that stays that's evergreen man yeah you know what i mean it's like you know the those songs like even the ones that you chose to do that aren't your songs that you know them for a reason they never go away yeah and if yeah. you can make those things that never go away for kids generations yeah. of them it's an amazing thing it was great fun also sort of going through old tin pan alley because mm-hmm. back in the 30s these ridiculous inka dinka do oh and sure yeah Heresy dotes the, yeah they wrote these idiotic songs for commercial adult consumption yeah. but they're 
wonderful songs for kids. I mean, when I was a kid, Danny Kay was this huge thing. Sure. We loved, we had this album that we must have played a million times, Danny at the Palace. Uh-huh. Doing all these, and, I, and I've done several of them on my album. Oh, you have? Yeah. Danny, he was a song and dance. What was his big movie, Danny Kay? Hans, Hans Christian Anderson. Oh, and yeah, yeah, The Court yeah. Jester. And God, you mentioned that to anyone under... 50 now and they have to really struggle. I can picture his face. I mean, I like he's very was, handsome. He, he, he was, was younger than it was it was I I'm not that old enough to know those things. When I was younger, I, I was very uh, obsessed with old entertainment somehow. Mm-hmm. Well, vaudeville. I mean, yeah. Vaudeville it's it reemerges in different strains. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the, uh, it never goes away. It never goes away. You Did know? you see that Stan and Ollie movie? No, I you didn't. You should see it. Is it good? It's so good. Yeah, I will. I'm so mad that that it doesn't seem like a lot of people are seeing it. Well, it's because who knows about Stan and Ollie anymore? But that, but you know that what they look like. That's all we really know. Even even any generation, right? That has seen those black and whites is uh, the the whatever's available when you're yeah. a kid. But maybe you're right. But the, the thing is, is that those two guys, John C. Riley and um, and Steve, Steve Coogan. Coogan, really, you know. Give them depth. They, no, they I will. Make, uh, I will see it. They I, make them people, and yeah. they're people in show business, and they're people in a difficult point in show business in their yeah. careers. And it's just such a sweet. Oh, I will movie. watch it. I will watch it. So, what's this play you're doing? Aha! Uh-huh. that's the one I'm doing. Laurie Metcalf. It's called Hillary and Clinton. It's Where is a, it? Is it New York or it'll here? It'll be on Broadway. Okay. And whose play is that? It's a, a wonderful young writer yeah. uh, named Lucas Nath, uh-huh. H-N-A-T-H. And he wrote, he's written a lot of plays, but he wrote off on Broadway, Doll's House 2, mm. a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. That, and Laurie played the title role and won the Tony Award for it. Have you worked with her before? She came and did a three-episode arc on Third Rock from the Sun. Okay. It was hilarious. And she was nominated for an Emmy for it as a guest uh as a guest artist. She's intense, man. She is the greatest actress. Yeah. Getting up on stage with her, I can't wait. Yeah. She is so sharp and <laughs> such an attack. Yeah. And so smart. Yeah. It's really good. And th- the play is really good. What's it about? Well, it's about Bill and Hillary at an ex- at a very crucial moment in their history. Uh-huh. It, it, it takes place the night, the day before and the day after the New Hampshire primary in 2008 when she was running not against Trump but against Obama. Yeah. And uh and it's it, it's it, it in a sense it's kind of like the crown where there are these very extremely well-known public figures that yeah. everybody's obsessed with but nobody really knows what's inside their lives, yeah. their private lives and it's it's a kind of hypothetical and speculative play but mm-hmm. it's a it, this guy is such a tremendous writer. It's it, it's got it's got the dramatic structure of an Ibsen play. It's a very funny play, mm-hmm. but it's got turns of plot that the storytelling is just great. They don't they don't write plays like this mm-hmm. anymore. I just love it. Well, that's great. So to play Bill Clinton, how do you not make that a uh, caricature? Well, it's a kind of a deal is made with the audience almost instantly. Mm-hmm. Out comes Laurie, just as Laurie, and says, basically, don't even, don't worry. We're not even trying to imitate these people. Mm. It's a, it's just an alternate take on them. So, so I'm not 
making the slightest effort to look like him or sound like him. Huh. You'll see. You got to see it. It's going to be just tremendous. <laughs> it's a four-character play. Who are the other two characters? I I don't think I'll tell you because one of them's a big surprise. Oh, can't spoil it? No spoilers. That's right. Got it. And, uh, well, it sounds interesting. And certainly the, the two of you guys together, that's crazy. That's yeah. gonna be uh, that's gonna be something, and what what uh, are you, what what's this what's the Fox News movie? Ah, well, I'm playing Roger Ailes. How was that playing another monster? Well, it all depends on how you l- look at him uh, objectively. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was a monster, but uh, whenever but I play a whenever I play a monster, I sort of shake hands with sure, him. Sure, you give him and, some yeah yeah. Uh, it's Humanity. A, it's a terrific script by Charles Randolph, who yeah. co-wrote The Big Short. It's directed by Jay Roach, He's a funny. wonderful director. He does good comedy movies, right? And this cast, it's me, but. The other major characters are the women at Fox. Sure. It's really about the women's response to, mm-hmm. to the culture. Who of plays Megyn Kelly again? Megyn Kelly is played by Charlize Theron. Oh, yeah. And and Nicole Kidman right. plays Gretchen Carlson. Margot Robbie, Allison Janney, Connie Britton, Kate McKinnon. It's, it's the most extraordinary ensemble great great actresses that's a that is a that's a powerful bunch of women there and it's such a smart i mean you never know you're inside it all but uh have you uh, seen a cut no no when's it out well you know it's a very very glorified independent film uh uh i don't it's not a studio film it's not slated i don't think it's even titled yet Uh but it's really going to be good i think well yeah it felt great acting those scenes and they're and they're very challenging scenes there's you know you we've been obsessed with the me too movement and all and the downfall of Mm -hmm. all these harassers Mm -hmm. from the last couple of years but you never i i don't think i have seen it accurately portrayed uh I mean, there's no way of accurately uh, recreating what actually happened behind closed doors. Right, but, but see, exploring the other side of it. Uh, yes, and, and and in depth, like all of the... Uh, what's most fascinating is all the different reactions of all the different women. Yeah. Because, you know, some people, for all sorts of complex reasons, have to either accommodate... Or not accommodate, mm-hmm. defy, mm-hmm. or uh, protest, sue, or accept, a- and everyone, everyone in the film faces a deep moral dilemma, including uh, including Ailes himself, as hmm. far as I'm concerned. Yeah, uh, you know, Connie Britton plays this fascinating part of his wife. Uh, Allison plays his attorney, Susan Estridge, who was a feminist and a great yeah. advocate for women and, yeah. and protecting women. That's complicated. The complex it's very movie. complex. Uh, it's a complex story, and and the background, of course, is the birth of Fox News. Mm-hmm. Roger Ailes created Fox News, and and his downfall has all kinds of resonance with what's happening right now. Yeah. Oh, that sounds exciting. It's all done, right? It's all shot. You know, yeah, they're they're cutting it and. Jay's very happy. Oh, good. He sent me an email saying, wow, this is really working. <laughs> so oh, good. That's always good. That's great. I met him on a plane briefly. Yeah. So he's going to do the play. That's coming out. And uh, what else? You, that's enough. Huh? I'm writing a book. Really? Yeah. About yourself? No. Oh, good. It's 
No, <laughs> I've done that. Yeah, I've done a couple of those. Um, right? No, I, I, uh, it is so, uh, it's a project in such infancy, in infancy, yes. I, I hesitate to even talk about it. Wary to talk it's about satirical it. satirical doggerel verse mm. on, the, on, on the subject of the Trump administration. And all these astounding characters. I mean, if you just look at it, an, an actor looking sure. looking at this list of characters, there's about 50 of them mm. who are so unbelievably bizarre. Yeah. Comic, appalling, horrific, the scary. Yeah, the worst, yeah. The worst. They're, they're, they, are, they are almost as if they are satirical characters. Yeah, it's like... What's doggerel verse? No, well, it's... Doggerel verse—it's nonsense verse, but okay. it's uh, like Lewis Carroll and sure, uh, Edward, sure. Edward Lear. Oh, so you're going to do one, a funny poetry? It, it's comic. I to me, the the only way I can deal with my kind of chronic low-level depression about the state of this country, yeah, is to make some sort of uh, comic comment on it. Yeah, I'm up on it. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm up on the decline. Well, good. Let's, You're let's, up on the decline. Yeah. <laughs> I like that phrase. <laughs> it's not going to last forever. I'm an optimist by nature. Oh, good. I I, uh, I think I am, but I don't know. I, I think it's just a, it's it's some sort of denial thing. Of course it is. And mm. but I, it's, it's we do forget. It's it's almost like you know you can get addicted to a streaming uh, oh, yeah. drama, mm-hmm. you know, created oh, yeah. for Netflix or Amazon. Right. I try to think of this as as the streaming drama of our lives. <laughs> when I think back to my young years, yeah, one of the great villains of my childhood was Richard Nixon. Sure. All through the fifties, yeah, you know, Yellow Springs, Ohio. He was the one of the major. He and Joe McCarthy and Roy Cohn. Those were the great boogeymen. Right. As a result. His come down in 1973 or four took a while. It took a while, but when it came, it was one of the great <laughs> moments of elation in my childhood. I uh, think I have that coming. Oh, good. I think, I, I think, I think there's we, a second coming. We all have that coming. <laughs> did Did you go? Uh, I read that that you gave a commencement at Harvard, and yeah. you were the first actor to do so. Yes, first and only so far. And, and was that was that a, a a big moment or no? Oh, it was wonderful. Yeah. It was fantastic. As a matter of fact, I I used my children's books as kind of the theme. I, I wrote a children's book for the occasion. Uh-huh. It was a lot of fun because that year there had been a kind of outrage. There then President Lawrence Summers had made an offhand comment about women not being suited for science. Oh, right. And it, it was really, it cost him his presidency. There was such an outrage. Yeah. And that outrage was boiling all year long. So I'm convinced they invited me to give the commencement speech because I was the least offensive person they could think of. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And I decided to write a children's book for the occasion, to give a boilerplate commencement speech, but end it with something that I had done. Yeah. As I, the, my theme was be creative, be useful, be practical, be, yeah. be generous. And yeah. I said, okay, I'm creative. I've created a book for the yeah. occasion. Practical, it's going to be published. Yeah. Useful, well, it's going to help pour oil on troubled waters here yeah. at Harvard this year. Uh-huh. It's about a mouse, a little girl mouse named yeah. Mahalia, yeah. who happens to be brilliant at 
science. <laughs> and, and it ro- the, the, the laughter just rolled yeah. across these 20,000 people sitting outside <laughs> in the sunshine. Yeah. And I then recited this verse uh, children's book called Mahalia Mouse Goes to College. Uh-huh. And it was all about a brilliant little science student who ends uh, up graduating from from Harvard. Yeah. And I said, I dedicated it to the class of 2005, and all my proceeds went to their class gift. Uh, so I was, that was my little homily. Uh, and, oh, so you published it. And it it's published. Yeah. It's a terrific book. Oh, good. And I got a standing ovation, and I performed an encore of one of my children's songs. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I c- and, and, you, and you stuck it to the man. I could, well, he was seated right behind me. <laughs> no, but it was very gentle. It, it was. Yeah. Uh, I was not. I was not. Uh, I did not. You didn't. You weren't going like this guy. Him. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's like I couldn't let the moment no, pass course, without giving some nod to the thing that had obsessed the campus all year long and you did it from an uh, a child's perspective yes right which is you know which made everybody process it yeah. in that way yeah it wasn't an intellectual thing <laughs> right right yeah that's great well it was great talking to you man oh god are we done yeah i think so it's wonderful talking to you mark and you, uh, you're, you're just you do, do such great things with this oh, i'm really proud it. to be on it oh thanks so. <laughs> good luck with the play Thank you. Break I, a you leg. gotta come see it. You I have will. to promise me you'll come to see it. When I'm going to New York, I want to see a couple plays. I'll see that one. I'm going to see the the uh, the Miller play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I so saw, Tracy's a good friend of yours, huh? We we're new friends. It's weird when you're yeah. at middle age and making friends. Yes, yeah. we're and I you know I talk about it a lot, but you know we've spent time together. We've gone out and ate, and I've God, seen his plays. Such, he's such a bright man. Yes, yeah, I like that. making him laugh. He's a good audience for me yeah. somehow. I don't <laughs> I don't know him very well, but I've. I've uh, I saw him at the Steppenwolf years ago in a great good career. actor. Yeah, he's a terrific actor. Yeah, and his plays are good. This is good. The new one down at the Mark Taylor. Yes, State. I heard you talking about it on. Yeah, I liked year. it. It's a, some, it's a, if you're a certain type of uh, fella, it's going to relate to a little hard. Yeah, you're going you're gonna, to it's going to resonate with you in ways that are going to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> well, that's, that's one. What, that's one of the things we try to do. That's what theater's for. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks. Man. Great to talk to you. Okay, that was great. I love that guy. And now I will pray. Pray. Fuck my mouth. Jesus, fuck. You know, it's like some days. And now I will play, play. Now I will play, play, play guitar. Play. Oh, God damn it. Play. Here we go.
Boomer lives.